run out of greetings. Swedish explorer Otto Nordenskold came from a family with some exploration credentials. His uncle, Adolf Erik Nordenskold, took northern navigation in new directions, becoming the first to sail the northeast passage across the top of Siberia in 1880, while the northwest passage remained untraversed. In 1889, Adolf offered to lead a combined Australian and Swedish expedition to Antarctica, hoping to capitalise on the enthusiasm already displayed by the Royal Society of Victoria. It was Adolf's offer of £5,000 funding that catalysed the Royal Society of Victoria's formation of their Antarctic Committee, but the funds needed to match the Swedish contribution never materialised and the project never got off the blocks. Lecturer in Geology at Uppsala University, Otto Nordenskold, inspired by his uncle's efforts, led his own expedition in 1895, investigating Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. While the Swedish Antarctic expedition he went on to lead carried no government sanction and received no official funding, he coordinated his plans with those of the concurrent government-sponsored British and German expeditions to avoid replicated efforts. Nordenskold commissioned Henrik Bull's former vessel, the Antarctic, and engaged Carl Anton Larsen, noted whaler and polar veteran, as his captain. Nordenskold assembled a crew of 16 and a scientific contingent of 7, with an additional geologist, Gunnar Andersen, slated to join the ship at the Falklands as second in command. The expedition departed Jotunberg on the 16th of October 1901, Staging through Buenos Aires on the 15th of December, an American artist, formerly part of Robert Peary's Greenland expedition, Frank Wilbert Stokes, joined the ship, and an Argentinian naval officer, Lieutenant Jose Maria Sobral, came aboard, the Argentine government trading his role in the Winter Party for fuel and food supplies. Fully bunkered and victualled, the ship left Buenos Aires on the 21st of December, arriving among the South Shetlands on the 11th of January, making a brief landing before sailing onto the Orléans Strait and unknown territory. Among the geographic findings revealed by their movements, it became clear that Louis-Philippe Land was not an island, but contiguous with Dunco Land. The Antarctic sailed between Louis-Philippe Land and Joinville Island, a stretch of water sighted but not sailed by de Montdevere, so the Swedes claimed naming rights, bestowing the not-at-all-confusing name Antarctic Sound to celebrate their ship, which was named after a continent, which was named after the fact that they were opposite a cluster of stars, itself named after a bear that it barely resembled. They landed a party at Paulette Island and laid a depot on Seymour Island, gradually working their way south down the eastern side of the peninsula. They steamed southwest, seeking a landing at Oscar II Land, but ice blocked their path at 66 degrees 10 minutes south, so on February the 1st, the ship turned north and on the 9th, deposited a winter party at Snow Hill Island at a site selected for the interesting fossil finds made there. A magnetic observation hut provided onshore shelter while a more substantial prefabricated hut took shape, a process hampered by a series of bad storms. This 6.4 metre by 4.1 metre structure provided winter quarters for Nordenskold and a team of five, including Stokes and Sir Braal, who became the first Argentinian to winter in Antarctica, a first with greater historical moment than the four Swedes put together. 
left the shore as the Antarctic headed north to the Falklands. That's the Antarctic in ship form. In March, the Winter Party began a series of sledge and boat journeys to lay depots to sustain future forays and establish the routine of scientific observations slated to occupy their time and energy through the winter darkness. The winter, already noted as a particularly harsh affair around the Antarctic coast, hit the shore party hard with a series of storms preventing outdoor work, one particularly strong blizzard persisting from the 15th to the 24th of July with temperatures around minus 30 degrees Celsius. More clement weather in spring allowed sledging to resume. Nordenskold led a team comprising Sabral and Ole Johansson. I think his name was Ole, O-L-E, and that we're not using a nickname denoting an elderly member of the team, as this really is no country for old men. Heading for the Oscar II land coast, they made the first footfall on the eastern shore of the Antarctic Peninsula on the 18th of October, after a difficult trek across sea ice. This first came at a high cost. A storm blew the tent apart. Johansson injured his arm, and the dogs found and ate all of the dog food, the bags that came in, much of their harness, and the dog whip. And I like to think that as they finished off the last of the leather, they looked up with an expression that said, Your move, monkeys. On the 31st of October, the party returned to the hut after 33 days of outdoor living and a journey of 380 miles. Antarctic sledging hit its straps. Science and sledging continued through the summer months, but people became tense as January slipped by and February brought no indication the ice might break out enough to allow the ship to return. A storm on the 18th of February refroze what signs of thawing the sea exhibited and the shore party steeled themselves for a second winter on Snow Hill Island. We'll leave Nordenskold there for the moment, and make a temporary temporal backtrack to join the Antarctic in the Falklands, which sounds even dumber when you try to say it than when you type it out. With Gunnar Andersen leading the shipborne part of the expedition in Nordenskold's stead, the Antarctic headed south on the 5th of November. On the 9th, they sighted pack ice at 59 degrees, 30 minutes south, unprecedentedly far north and boding ill for their mooted meet-up with the shore party. On the 11th, the ice surrounded the ship. Larsen could steam about and ram the ice to make small gains southward, but storms and icebergs, one offering a particularly near miss only avoided by use of full steam and much sail, made their position a precarious one. Larsen steered for safer waters near the South Shetlands and Deception Island. As summer passed, they worked to the west of the peninsula, awaiting temperatures or winds sufficient to cause the dense pack to break out and allow them access to their compatriots. They charted the Orléans and Gulash Straits, improving on the 1898 efforts of the Belgians, with geological and botanical samples taken at every opportunity. With the charting satisfactorily completed on the 5th of December, the ship turned for Antarctic Sound once more, but ice blocked their access. Larsen employed his considerable expertise in working among the ice to ram his way south to the Erebus and Terra Gulf, but determined that the shore party could only be reached that summer by sledging. The ship backed out of the ice trap, sailed back to the western side of the peninsula, and landed Gunnar Anderson, Lieutenant Deuce, and Seaman Torolf Grunden at Hope Bay 
before making another attempt to reach Snow Hill Island on the other side of the peninsula. The Hope Bay Party laid a depot and began the 200 nautical mile trek to Snow Hill Island, their goal being to bring the Winter Party to Hope Bay to meet the ship if Larson couldn't make better progress to Snow Hill Island in his second attempt. The Hope Bay Party managed to cross the Gustav Channel to the Vega Headland on skis, but found their progress to James Ross Island, previously thought contiguous to Vega, blocked by open water. The water frustrated their efforts, but offered assurance that the Antarctic would reach Snow Hill Island before returning to Hope Bay to collect them too. Before parting, Anderson and Larson arranged a schedule taking into account all contingencies. The 10th of March marked the last date anyone at Hope Bay should expect collection, but the thwarted Hope Bay team began construction on a hut in mid-February and started hunting and caching penguins to supplement the supplies on hand. Stone walls formed the bases of the hut and a sledge gave structure to its tarpaulin roof. They sealed the stonework with snow and seawater and pitched their tent inside. Berms of storm-cast snow insulated the whole structure, but even so the temperature inside the treble-layered edifice never really reached much above freezing. 700 penguins and a few seals and fish constituted their larder when the shortening days and lowering temperatures saw all surface life depart the site. Theirs was a deadly dull winter. With no science and only three minds to provide conversation and diversion, small routines took on magnified significance. In particular, the three recounted that the preparation and serving of meals became the focus of a protracted sequence of formal niceties. Cooking the day's meals on the sooty, not especially hot blubber stove they fabricated took the whole day. The three shared the duty in strict rotation, but the two off-duty companions provided entertainment for the whole group in the form of lavish speeches of gratitude for the food and the efforts of the cook of the day. And it's with this depressing nod to theatre that we leave the Hope Bay hopefuls and catch up with events on the Antarctic in ship form. After dropping Anderson and co at Hope Bay, the Antarctic tried to force its way southeast down the eastern side of the tip of the peninsula, but, in spite of the Hope Bay party's confidence in their finding open water, ice once more blocked their path. Larson let the ship ride among the loose pack, but as their drifting course brought them near Paulette Island, Strong winds closed the pack up, and the ship was pinched. Wind and currents acting on the pack brought pressure to bear on the hull, and, lacking the specially designed ice climbing hull of the Fram or the Gauss, the Antarctic fared poorly against the onslaught. On the 9th of January, botanist Carl Scottsberg recorded, During the forenoon the pressure on the sides of the vessel, which had begun yesterday, could scarcely be marked, but after dinner, just as we sat down to a hand at cards, the ship began to tremble like an aspen leaf, and a violent crash sent us all up on deck to see what the matter was. The pressure was tremendous. The vessel rose higher and higher, while the ice was crushed to powder along her sides. The ship's pumps managed to keep abreast of the resulting leaks, but Larson decided to beach the Antarctic on Paulette Island and make repairs. He began steaming down a promising lead, but shifting winds caused the ice to close on the ship, and the leaks became worse with each impact. The pumps began losing ground. Larson gave the order to abandon ship on the 12th of February, 25 miles shy of Paulette Island. Carl Scottsberg again. 
We stand in a long row on the edge of the ice and cannot take our eyes off her. The pumps are still going, but the sound grows fainter and fainter. She is breathing her last. She sinks slowly, deeper and deeper. Now the name disappears from sight. Now the water is up to the rail, and with a rattle, the sea and bits of ice rush in over her deck. That sound I can never forget, however long I may live. Now the blue and yellow colours are drawn down into the deep. The mizzenmast strikes against the edge of our flow and is snapped off. The mainmast strikes and breaks. The crow's nest rattles against the ice edge, and the streamer, with the name Antarctic, disappears into the waves. The bowsprit, the last mast top, she is gone. It seems surprising at this end of the historical telescope, but the loss of the ship that constituted their home, their larder, and their cache of scientific records and specimens eased the minds of the crew. Living on a ship constantly in danger of being pinched is a different kettle of psychological fish to knowing that that ship sank. The certainty of their admittedly precarious situation, the easing of suspense over whether or not they would shortly be heading home, is alleged to have given the crew their best night's sleep in some time. The newly shipwrecked crew and the ship's cat spent two weeks making the crossing to Paulette Island. The opening and closing of leads that cost them their ship now hampered their progress, with people and supplies ferried from flow to flow on the ship's longboat. On those flows strong enough to permit their safe crossing, the rough, sastrugi-sculpted surfaces required smoothing with axes before a sled could make any progress. Progress was made, though, and on the 28th of February 1903, the crew reached Paulette Island and began preparing for the winter they knew they must spend there. With only one tonne of food salvaged from the stricken ship, one tonne sounds like a lot, but map it out in tins of beans and figure on 20 or so people surviving on that volume for a high latitudes winter and it suddenly doesn't seem all that impressive. They set about laying in penguins as a food supply. An estimated three to 4,000 birds were needed to keep everyone fed through the winter, but the birds, almost at the end of their molt, weren't hanging about. Day by day, as their molting process came to its conclusion, the birds left the beaches. Only 1,100 ended up in the meat cache. A double-walled, 10-metre by 7-metre stone hut, laboriously constructed, provided their shelter from the increasingly powerful storms as spring passed into winter. The one highlight of the period came at Easter, when a feed of rice porridge provided a comparative feast. The dearth of tobacco seemed as much concerned for some of the crew as the dullness of the food, with some experimental blends of whatever was dry and surplus to requirements keeping the worst affected nicotine fiends at least busy, if not satisfied. Unsure if their failure to reach nominated rendezvous points would see a rescue effort mounted on their behalf, their winter, perhaps more so than those of the shore parties who may have speculated on but could have no certainty over the fate of the Antarctic, ship version, was a season of deep fears. People made an effort at maintaining morale, but the mood ran to gloomy. Food and rescue became the focus of their dreams, and anyone who's repeatedly woken to disappointment about anything dreamt of repeatedly will have an inkling of how taxing it must be to awaken from transports of delight over feasts of favourite foods or of fantasies of friends returning on a sound ship to collect you, hour after hour, night after night, 
month after month. Carl Scottsberg, coming through with the pros once more. Many hundreds of dreams have been dreamed on our island, but I do not know if they help to brighten our existence. They group themselves around two objects, food and rescue. Why, we could dream through a whole dinner, from the soup to the dessert, and waken to be cruelly disappointed. How many times did we see the relief vessel, and we knew the persons on board? They spoke about our journey, took us in their arms, patted us on the back. Old Venusgard, ill for several weeks through the late spring, died on the 7th of June. With storms and darkness outside, the crew buried him in a snowdrift until spring brought light and an easing in the storm roster sufficient to give him a more permanent grave. And it's back to Hope Bay. As autumn got into full swing, the Antarctic's failure to arrive informed Anderson and co that something went badly awry on the ship. If the ship was lost immediately after dropping them at Hope Bay, no one else on the planet could know they were not lost with the ship, let alone where to look for them. So reaching Snow Hill Island became their only possible action. On the 29th of September, the Hope Bay contingent left their winter quarters in ragged clothing and remnant boots, bearded and covered in a thick layer of blubber soot, intent on reaching Snow Hill Island before the spring opened up gaps in the sea ice. A bad storm trapped the three men in their tent for two days, but on the 6th of October they began their crossing to Vega Island. They found a depot providing much missed variety in their diet on the 9th. They reached Cape Dreyfus on the 12th and saw it undergo a sudden and very apt name change to Cape Well Met. But more of that in a moment, because it's back to the Snow Hill Island mob. Nordenskjold led a spring sled journey to explore behind Cape Foster. Seeking a view of ice conditions in the Erebus and Terra Gulf to see if a crossing to Paulette Island might be attempted, Nordenskjold led a second sled trip to a promontory on Vega Island. From their vantage point, Nordenskjold thought he could see three penguins far out in the frozen sea. And now the Hope Bay hopefuls again. Anderson wondered why those seals over there were upright, as opposed to their customary prone or supine poses. The seals weren't seals, they were Nordenskjold and his sled team. Likewise, the penguins weren't penguins, they were the Hope Bay trio, though it took some time for Nordenskjold to realise this. Black as soot from top to toe, men with black clothes, black faces and high black caps, and with their eyes hidden by peculiar wooden frames, my powers of guessing fail me when I endeavour to imagine to what race of men these creatures belong. Back on Paulette Island, on October the 31st, the ice in the Erebus and Terra Gulf broke out. Larsen organised a boat crew and set out for Hope Bay. Poor weather forced a hauling out onto an ice floe for several days, and they reached the hut built by Anderson, Deuce and Grunden on the 4th of November, five weeks after the trio departed for Snow Hill Island. A note they left behind gave Larsen his last and only option, to head to Snow Hill Island himself which he and the longboat crew did. Meanwhile, back in Europe, news of the unusually dense ice hampering the concurrent German and English expeditions prompted concerns for the Swedes' safety. Swedish, French and Argentine ships began preparations for a relief or rescue attempt, as the situation necessitated. The Francais, another ship confusingly named after a place, under Jean Charcot, 
see episode 28, already gearing up for an expedition of its own, added a plan to search for the Antarctic, ship version, to its itinerary. Lieutenant Julian Irizar, Argentinian naval attaché to London, headed home to where the Argentine corvette Uruguay. Seriously, people, if you keep naming ships after places, all you'll get is confusion as places those ships discover are named after those ships. Was being refitted and reinforced for a voyage among the ice. Nordenskjöld arrived back at Snow Hill Island camp with the Hope Bay contingent. On the 7th of November, Larsen's longboat crew, having rowed their boat as far as they could, began hauling over sea ice. This is getting quite exciting, isn't it? Irizar sailed the Uruguay south and met Nordenskjöld, whose joy at seeing a ship after two winters ashore, just shy of the circle, was tempered by the Argentine's melancholy lack of news about the Antarctic, the ship. No sign of the ship or its crew. As the Norwegians made preparations for bed that night, the barking of their dogs alerted Nordenskjöld to the arrival of the longboat party after their 15-mile trek across the sea ice. No pen can describe the boundless joy of this first moment. I learned at once that our dear old ship was no more in existence, but for the instant I could feel nothing but joy when I saw amongst us these men, on whom I had only a few minutes before been thinking with feelings of the greatest despondency. With the longboat, Snow Hill Island and Hope Bay parties loaded aboard, the Uruguay headed for Paulette Island to collect the remaining 14 residents and the cat. Carl Scottsberg can give the moment voice. I must have been dreaming. The sound is repeated. It must be so. The boat is here. I thump at the sleepers beside me. Can't you hear? It is the boat. The shouts are so deafening that the penguins awake and join in the cries. The cat, quite out of her wits, runs round and round the walls of the room. The Uruguay stopped in at Hope Bay to collect the fossils cached there because science pays the bills, don't you know? Among the fossils was evidence of the largest penguin yet discovered. The Swedish expedition's findings amounted to six volumes of published material. The Swan Hill Island hourly meteorological observations, then the longest continuous series at such a high southern latitude, showed significant differences in the temperatures between the 1902 and 1903 winters giving the first indication of the complexity Antarctica would plague meteorologists with in the decades to come. The fossils brought to light indicated the present-day Antarctic, continent version, was once part of a larger ancient continent, though how that might happen was still 50 years away in the some splainin to do department. Otto Nordenskjöld returned to great national acclaim and sizeable debts, but he didn't die in poverty as so many Antarctic explorers of the previous century did. A professorship in Gothenburg saw him go on to lead expeditions to Greenland and South America. Nordenskjöld and Andersen's book, Antarctica, Two Years Amongst the Ice of the South Pole, runs to 600 pages of text and, like the tribulations it describes, constitutes a feat of reader's endurance. It might be the translation from Swedish, it might be that Nordenskjöld and Andersen weren't up to much as writers. Nordenskjöld died in 1928, hit by a bus in Jotunberg. It's been a while since I advised that you take care and enjoy your coffee, so I guess you're expected to internalise that by now.